you can get to a, an equivalent amount of performance in many fewer nodes, dozens of fewer nodes. When you start thinking about the data center implications of that in terms of floor space you get back, rack space you get back, power budget you get back, and then even you know getting down to the bottom line, you start thinking about your total cost of acquisition. You know, you're buying basically fewer servers, and then when you think about total cost of ownership over time, that many fewer servers are going to eat less energy to get the work you need done. As we think about infrastructure for the AI era, there is so much for IT decision makers to consider. For example, what are the overall trends regarding the use of GPUs for acceleration and artificial intelligence? What should you think about around an infrastructure build and the data center challenge that we're seeing now that's underpinning artificial intelligence? And where are the big gains around traditional machine learning and deep learning? So we've invited Dave Salvatore, Senior Product Marketing Manager at NVIDIA, to join us and give us his perspective on all of this and more. Hi, I'm Des Blanchfield, and this is From Here to AI, a podcast that gives you real stories and best practices to help you navigate your journey to implementing artificial intelligence. Welcome to another episode from here to AI. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host, and today I'm joined by Dave Salvatore, Senior Product Marketing Manager at NVIDIA. Hi, Dave. How are you? Fine, thanks. How are you doing, Des? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for making time to catch up with me. So, uh, Dave, I'd like to do a couple of things. I'd like to uh, first thing just to get to know you a little bit better and then to dive into your role and uh, have a chat about the whole topic of artificial intelligence, if we could. So uh, just uh, for folk who may not know who you are, would you uh, do me a favor and just quickly introduce yourself and uh, give us an outline of your role uh, and just a, a bit of a, a map of what Senior Product Marketing Manager at NVIDIA actually means on a day-to-day basis? Sure. So um, a lot of what I do is working with our account teams who work with our customers. And it's really to help guide them to some of the right solutions that we offer in, in the space of data center and, and AI so part of what I'm doing is trying to build out content and, and meet with one of those customers and certainly talk with our reps to make sure that, you know, that they're really well aware of, of all the solutions that we offer. Um, you know, because a lot, you know, we're more known for our GPUs, you know, our hardware, and, a lot, and more often than not, we're known in the gaming space when, in fact, you know, we, we've really been kind of one of the pioneers in deep learning and data center space for accelerating. And it's not just our hardware, but also our software that, that makes it super important. And, you know, so I've been with NVIDIA for about a year and a half. And prior to that, I was in the industry for about 11 years. And then prior to that, I was a journalist for 13 years. So I've um, had kind of an interesting uh, trip along the way to get to where I am. Wow. Uh, you're, I, I, I did like your uh, comment there just about uh, going from journalism background because you, you kind of almost get a, a backstage pass on a lot of the insights that the, that's happening in the inside the industry that we, we may not uh, have otherwise. Uh, certainly, you know, whether you're going to events or meeting with organizations and, and some of the new announcements and stuff, you tend to get a really good detailed insight into what they're doing. Um, now, your role inside NVIDIA currently, there's, I mean, there's a, we could talk for days around that, but I'd love just to focus on the artificial intelligence side of it because there's been a, a huge uptake in the use of, of I guess, uh, your technology and certainly the, um, uh, the, the, the combination of, I guess, CUDA and GPUs and, and, uh, that space in uh, particularly deep learning, but artificial intelligence generally, because I guess there's a lot of heavy math involved here. Um, maybe uh, give us a, firstly, I'd like to kind of dive into um, 
a bit of the history, I, I guess, if you could, around kind of how we got to where we are. Um, what kind of roadmap does it look like from sort of where NVIDIA started from originally? Because I guess we, we originally knew the brand uh, predominantly because of media, I guess, which is kind of ironic and given your history, uh, from the gaming industry and, and I guess, you know, hardware acceleration of graphics. Uh, but when we think about it today, we hear about, uh, you know, anecdotes of people flying 747 loads of them out there to build sort of, you know, supercomputer clusters for artificial intelligence and uh, self-driving cars. Um, maybe could you just give us some quick background and kind of uh, where we've sort of come from and, and how we got to where we are as far as the, the whole topic of acceleration in general? Sure. So, I mean, accelerators are nothing new in our industry. They've been around for decades. And, you know, typically accelerators focus their attention on, on a specific type of problem or a specific type of use case. Uh, in the case of, of GPUs, I mean, we used to call them graphics accelerators. Uh, and for the most part, they accelerated two-dimensional graphics like we, you know, we kind of are used to in our, our user interfaces. Um, and then, you know, 3D graphics came in and, and just created this whole wave of innovation for the PC platform primarily. And then in about 1999, NVIDIA came up with a programmable GPU. And, and the purpose there was to give developers another degree of freedom uh, to allow them to kind of create their own effects and not have to wait around for a new piece of hardware or a new version of an API. And you saw that in the form of things like water effects, fire effects, and all, all, all manner of things, and things around lighting and illumination. And so that was sort of another great step forward. And along with that, that programmable GPU came this thing called CUDA, which is the programming environment that we, that, we, that we make available for free to developers to allow them to program to our hardware and to make that process as easy and as straightforward as possible. Um, and then, you know, as, as CUDA sort of began to evolve, uh, you know, one of the places it found a lot of early success was in the domain of high-performance computing, which is more in, in sort of a scientific domain. You can think of examples being things like molecular dynamics or quantum chemistry. It's just a couple of examples. But then about six years ago, um, what happened is something we like to call the Big Bang of deep learning, which is uh, there has been a competition out of Stanford called the ImageNet competition, which has been run for years. And... Um, Basically, a new kind of neural network called a deep neural network was built by a guy there named Alex, and that network came to, is now today known as AlexNet. Okay, and so he came in and basically just just smoked the competition with this thing. It was it was incredible. He hit he hit speeds no one had ever seen before with levels of accuracy no one had ever seen before, and that just kind of turned that whole community upside down. And and every submission ever since has been GPU accelerated. Right, and so so that sort of began us down this path of realizing that hey, neural networks can do these really powerful things, but they have to start. They have to be deeper. That's the key word in there is deep, right? Because neural networks aren't new. Neural networks have been around for for, for a long, long time, but the fact that they've now gone to these deep, like deeper set of layers with more complex computations and more perceptrons is what really starts to give them some of their their power in terms of insight. And so you know when we've done this, this just you know. Rockets led ride since since then, you know, since since about six years ago, of you know innovating our CUDA platform, bringing in new new pieces of that CUDA platform to help accelerate both training and inference, and you know we now find ourselves today supporting every deep learning framework, as well as supporting over 550 uh, high performance computing applications. It's fascinating, isn't it? That uh, you know often when people sort of ask me, you know, what is, <clears throat> when you talk about this technology and, and where we've come from and and I really appreciate you giving us that background because a lot of people don't often uh, know that uh, we've come from, I guess, you know, as you said, that uh, uh, 2D and 3D uh, and then uh, high performance computing sort of scientific um, approach to using uh, GPUs. 
when I say to them, and I often write it up on a whiteboard, GPU, graphics processing unit, they look at me as if like, why do I need a graphics card, <laughs> my supercomputer or my AI? And you then spent time doing exactly what you've just done and explaining, well, you know, it's, it's really math, right? Um, so it is kind of, I, I actually, I think it's cool and cute that we still call them GPUs as far as graphics processors and that someone hasn't come up with a new name for them. Um, I'm sure someone will in some time. Um, but it is, uh, you know, I think this is the sort of trend we see many times in technology, isn't it? That we see something that was designed for A that eventually gets uh, leveraged for B and then uh, and just starts to develop and develop. Because we kind of have fallen into this thing in many ways and that is that people have just looked for the performance, uh, I guess, some um, improvements you've been talking about, particularly in this lineage between 2 and 3D graphics and then all of a sudden uh, scientific computer because we're always looking for ways to, to do science faster. Uh, and then business has sort of realized, well, hang on, I can, I can do this at a commodity scale and a commodity price uh, at scale and, um, and get some and real gains there. Uh, I guess one of the things I'd love to ask you, uh, just with that in mind, given that we've sort of, with all the things you've just uh, outlined on, on the journey we've gone through from uh, how we've gotten to here, um, you know, when you think about the, the overall trends regarding uh, the use of uh, acceleration and so forth, um, what are you seeing out there as far as the, I guess, the, the trends that we've had with um, the use of uh, GPUs for acceleration in general, and particularly for artificial intelligence? And, and what does that look like going forward? I mean, we, we've seen a fairly explosive growth uh, uh, as far as, um, you know, I like the Big Bang analogy. I think the Cambrian explosion comes to mind as well. Uh, what does that look like uh, as far as going, you know, going forward? What sort of trends do you see uh, taking place given that you're on the bleeding edge of this stuff? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting uh, because we've seen, you know, just this really rapid rise of accelerated computing data centers. And, and, and I use that term very broadly to include, you know, the, you know, every cloud provider out there, both here in the U.S. as well as in places like China. Um, and then you've also seen the use cases evolving at just this incredible uh, pace, uh, not only training, but also inference. And, and what we're seeing is, you know, we're basically giving developers a resource, a giant compute resource with which they're going off and figuring out, hey, I suddenly got just mountains of compute that I didn't used to have, and what can I do with that? You know, what, what, how does that liberate me to go chase after tough problems or get the answers faster or figure out smarter ways to parallelize things and accelerate them? And so, you know, the applicability, you know, it's probably a shorter list of, of industries, of industries who won't be affected by AI. And I think a lot of industries are looking at AI now going and saying, how do we use this to a business advantage? How can we be a first mover in this space? And, you know, whether that's an image-based network, and that has all sorts of implications around things like video analytics and video search, um, you know, image-based networks for doing image classification, object detection, which has all kinds of applications, both in data center and, and as well, obviously, in automotive. And then, you know, the other big one that I think is the up-and-comer is speech and natural language processing and and more natural translation that can happen in real time. Those are those are tough nut problems that have been with us for quite some time. But the level of compute we're seeing suddenly make bringing much more robust solutions to some of those problems um, not just possible, but but really quite practical. And so, you know, I think we're going to see you know researchers continue to push the envelope. You mentioned the Cambrian explosion, and. You know, the number of papers we're seeing being published uh, on sites like Archive over at Cornell um, around new types of neural networks um, is, is just astounding. It, it's, it's just a fantastic to see the rate of sort of innovation and, and all the experimenting that's going on in this domain to try and, and bring AI to, to new applications. 
And sort of more gratifying for us still is that the great majority of those papers being published, when you read into them and see what they're doing, is that they're doing a lot of that groundbreaking work on GPUs. Right, so that, that's obviously very gratifying to us. It sort of helps, you know, tell us that, you know, we think we're still kind of on the right path and that we're kind of that laboratory of choice um, where, where a lot of that cutting-edge research is happening. So those are, you know, some of the, the where we've been, kind of some of the where we're going. It is fascinating to watch you explode. I, uh, I mean, you know, one of the hats I wear is, is um, uh, as an acting data scientist and, and a lot of what we work on is, is related to many forms of, of use of artificial intelligence or whether it's machine learning or, or more often in the case these days deep learning um, and and I you know it's been interesting to watch the transition of, of not just Nvidia but another number of companies and um, I mean when I when I started to see the likes of uh, I guess the transition from what we would sort of think of desktop environments of the GPUs being cards and certain PCs for graphics to all of a sudden you know you were putting out data center solutions and I was like mm, that's interesting a graphics card company doing data center solutions, uh, and then you know embedded platforms. Uh, I guess you know around what will become uh, you know IoT focused things, and then all of a sudden GPU accelerated clouds. It's like wow, okay, this is a really serious transition. Uh, but that only happens if there's a market and demand and a need, right? And, and I guess a bunch of solutions are being developed around that. Um, in that transition, I guess one of the big challenges, based on what you've just outlined, there is you know, when we think about the infrastructure that we've got to design and architect and engineer and build to host and run and, and provide services from these sorts of environments. Um, what kind of things are you seeing out there as far as uh, what's, you know, I guess, performing well? Where are people getting gains when you think about some of the tips and tricks that uh, you've seen out there? Or what kind of recommendations do you often give when, when people are embarking on this whole journey of artificial intelligence and looking to go from you know an idea and a concept or a minimum viable product if they're a startup through to an existing, uh, you know, large enterprise, whether it's airlines or transport or aviation or banking and wealth management and finance in general, uh, where they're looking to leverage uh, artificial intelligence right down to sort of very complex networks in deep learning. Uh, what kinds of things are you seeing perform well? What sort of tips and tricks can you offer around that infrastructure build, the data center challenge that we're sort of seeing now that's underpinning artificial intelligence? It's a great question. Um, you know, one of the first things I'd mention is, you know, one of the one of the obvious advantages you get by going to GPU equipped servers is that you can get to a, an equivalent amount of performance in many fewer nodes, dozens of fewer nodes. In other words, one GPU equipped server can replace, you know, dozens and dozens of CPU only server nodes. When you start thinking about the data center implications of that in terms of floor space you get back, rack space you get back, power budget you get back, and then even, you know, getting down to the bottom line, you start thinking about your total cost of acquisition. You know, you're, you're buying basically fewer servers. And then when you think about total cost of ownership over time, you know, that many fewer servers are going to eat less energy to get the work you need done and will also require that much less, you know, you know cooling to make sure that they, they stay at a happy operating temperature. So there's just all kinds of advantages that we like to sort of walk our customers through to help them understand, you know, what, what GPU-based servers make possible. And in terms of some of the other specific implementations, you know, I would point to things like Facebook um, has been instrumental in de developing something called the Open Compute Platform. And, and we've done some work with them there around um, a set of, of build recommendations we call HGX, um, and the H standing for hyperscale. And these are essentially server, you know, design recommendations on how to go build GPU-equipped servers. And again, this, this gives an opportunity for for server makers to kind of accelerate their time to market and, and have sort of a basic recipe for getting them to market um, sooner 
and to make more service available out there in the market so that, you know, again, the, the, the IT decision makers looking to acquire these servers have more, more choices, right? So, so there's, there's a lot of different uh, sort of uh, moving parts here that, that, that I see from uh, just, you know, implementing this in the data center, and, the, and they're almost all, you know, upside for data center, uh, you know, DevOps and, and infrastructure managers because, again, they can put so much more performance into a single data center um, and and just get that much more out of existing data centers. And if they think about specking and building new data centers, again, they've just got this upside of being able to realize so much more performance out of those data centers than they could have previously. There's been a lot of um, work done on the actual server platform as well. I mean, uh, last time we were talking recently about this topic, uh, we, we discussed the, the latest and greatest from IBM, for example, the, the new Power9 series. And one of the things that you noted that I, I remember that jumped out at me was that uh, when we think about uh, server design in general, we've gone through a whole range of, 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 I guess, exciting history and different types of designs and architectures and backplanes and motherboards and buses and, and so forth on how data moves from a CPU to a GPU to memory and, and network and so forth. Um, one of the things that really jumped out at me when, when you were uh, outlining this in another conversation we had was um, with the IBM Power 9 series, they've implemented NVLink um, and uh, sort of removed a lot of the, the barriers to getting data in and out of the GPUs and particularly your, your V100 series um, in and out of the CPU and memory very quickly. And I guess this is going to the point you made earlier about just designing your architectures so that you can move a lot of data very quickly. You can get it in and out of, of uh, the systems and servers uh, on or off disk and network to memory and CPU and then into your cards and into your chips to to do that heavy lifting and do the math and, and leverage some of the amazing uh, uh, designs of, I guess, algorithms and, and networks in particular around the AI space. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of, you know, what, what that's brought about, you know, what are the big shifts that you've seen now with, with the whole transition to designing architectures and networks and, I guess, infrastructures for us data centers go, uh, the flow on impact and value that comes from sort of now having companies like IBM design service specifically for this purpose, where it's high bandwidth, high I.O., and in this particular case, the uh, the NVLink capability that talks directly to your hardware. Yeah, you know, that, that, boy, that was, there was a lot in that question, so let me see if I can unpack it. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, definitely the, the Power9 servers um, have made great use of NVLink as a way to allow the Power9 CPUs to talk to the NVIDIA Tesla GPUs. Um, and and, and that's, it's, a, it's an innovation where, where you know, we enjoyed sort of doing the work with IBM to kind of help bring that up uh, to market. Uh, in terms of some of the engineering work that we did, and then, but you know, IBM, of course, really deserves deserves most of the credit because they did most of the heavy lifting. But um, it, it is a it is a neat way to get the CPU and GPUs talking to one another in a way that makes them really more almost peer servers. You know, depending on the workload, you know, some workloads will more naturally gravitate toward toward you know running on CPU, particularly if they're serialized workloads that are really looking for just very fast serial performance and and very high clock speeds on relatively few cores, right? But for those workloads that can be parallelized, and that's things like uh, deep learning and high-performance computing, those are really going to, you know, perform best on GPUs. And so the implementation that IBM's put together, again, as you say, really allows that data to move around very quickly and and get in and out of the GPUs um, in a way that, uh, that that does offer some advantages. Right, and so, so yeah, that definitely is is uh, is an interesting implementation that uh, that allows these, you know that that server to, to perform well. You know, NVLink just to give a quick touch on that is it's sort of what we call our fabric technology that allows our GPUs to communicate with one another. And the reason that, that we think that's so important 
is that when, when, you know, when you're doing deep learning training, one of the steps involves the GPUs talking to each other to do what we call weight exchange. You're exchanging weights and gradients and other, other parameters uh, involved in doing the deep learning training, and they all basically have to kind of talk to each other and sort of say, here's my latest batch of work. Let's, all, let's sync up all of our weights so that we, we have coherent copies of the models across all the GPUs, right? something called data parallel. And so, so that, that communication to happen very quickly, as quickly as possible, this is what NVLink is really great at. I mean, we've got, you know, we've seen performance data where it can be up to 30 or 40% faster than, um, than just using PCIe. So, so it definitely offers, offers some, some significant performance advantages. I guess one of the biggest challenges that we always face when we think about this type of space, and, and, and it was interesting just to hear your comment about the workload uh, types there. Um, I'm really keen to get your uh, insights. And I guess, you know, where, where are the people making investments now um, in sort of, you know, what would be, a more traditional business approach to this sort of technology with artificial intelligence. Um, and then I'd love to come back on kind of how they're, they're getting some really uh, deep um, return on investment on the types of platforms they're choosing. But where, where are you seeing the big shifts and the big moves and, I guess, gains for uh, a take-up of, of you know, traditional machine learning and, and deep learning and so forth, uh, certainly with things like big data and enterprise leveraging AI? Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you, you touched on big data there uh, at the end of the question, and, and, you know, big data was kind of the buzzword du jour about five or so years ago when everyone was just fixating on big data and data acquisition, and then, you know, the, the, the phone, of course, would be some form of analytics. But, you know, a lot of the, you know, the analytics so far have, you know, have, some are more sophisticated than others, but, you know, it's a thing where a lot of enterprises went out and started collecting up just mountains of data and then they sort of got the data, and then they realized, oh boy, how do we, how are we going to sift through this much data and make any sense of it and glean insights and actually help drive the business? And this is where again AI can step in in the form of things like, you know, one example being predictive analytics, uh, and also in the form of, you know, you, you touched on machine learning as well, sort of traditional machine learning, which has been in the enterprise for some time. Um, you know, tra- traditional machine learning is is terrific at what it does. Um, and it has been a real workhorse for, for a lot of industries, but it does require a lot of essentially hand coding, you know, of parameters and of, of some of the parts of the model where you can basically just reprogram a deep neural network um, and not have to go through and do the, you know, do nearly as much of that sort of hand tuning, hand coding. And in fact, you know, as you accumulate new data, you know, through inference, you can be taking that data through and then actually, you know, retraining your network using that new data. In fact, we've heard, you know, of customers literally are retraining their network several times a day. Like every couple of hours, they actually retrain their neural networks to keep them up to date, to keep them accurate, and to guarantee great user experience. So, you know, you're seeing that, that as, as you know, even as we think about how we imagine training a neural network, that used to take days and weeks. And now it just takes maybe hours to days. You know, most it is hours, you know, basically less than 24 hours. And, and you know, that just fundamentally redefines how you can think about some of these problems because you've shifted the time scale down so much. And so there's just a lot of uh, opportunities there for, for enterprises to take these mountains of data that they've accumulated and figure out ways to harness them using AI to sort of glean the insights from them and figure out how to kind of cycle that back into their business to, uh, to, you know, to either streamline their business, better align to the market, better spot market trends. I mean, there's a whole host of, of potential applications here. Um. What kind of things are you seeing enterprise do now with regard to how they're employing uh, the likes of deep learning um, now that it's become almost a commodity thing? And, and how does that impact the sorts of decisions they make around platform choices uh, and the types of, of servers and platforms they're, they're 
putting in place to engage in some form of artificial intelligence, particularly deep learning these days? Well, sure. And I think this is going to, it comes down to scoping the problem, you know, early on about, you know, what is, what ultimately, what's the business problem we're solving for? In other words, what are we trying to do? How are we trying to move our business forward? Is it better insights? Is it better response time, better user experience? I mean, you know, it, it, it's very useful to define the problem in business terms first. You know, don't, you know, AI and deep learning are, are, are amazing technologies, but, you know, building them for their own sake doesn't necessarily solve business problems, right? So you need to sort of start with, What's the business problem we're trying to solve for? And then once you have a better understanding of that, that begins to inform how you want to scope your, your build-out of your deep learning and AI platform. In other words, is this particular platform I'm building going to be training only, as an example, or am I going to train, you know, to use an example, say, once a week, and most of the other time, most of those servers are going to be available online to handle inference so that I'm sort of getting maximum utilization out of these server assets. Uh, you know, and just really kind of defining how you intend to use the product, because depending on what those, how those questions get answered, that will begin to inform the kind of you know data center code you should probably look at doing. Um, as an example, you know, we sometimes did, you, you talked about taking you know you know older in-place servers and adding GPUs to them and getting a certain amount of performance benefit. Um, that's something we generally refer to as scale out, and we have a product as an example like Tesla P4 which is primarily targeted for inference and also for, for looking at things like video analytics and, and video inferencing. And uh, that product only only draws about 75 watts, and so it can actually be pretty easily deployed in a PCIe slot of an existing server if what you're looking to spin up is primarily inferencing-centric, right? Having said that, if you're looking to build out, you know, a large cluster that's really going to focus its time on on just getting researchers to just, you know, tear through their, their training runs as fast as possible, you know, in that case, you're probably looking at a scale up, is what we refer to it as, which is to say you're looking at probably deploying new servers that have really been purpose-built from from the beginning to really fully harness the power of GPUs. Because the other piece of this is, of course, is sort of an Amdahl's law piece of this, of of making sure that all your other surrounding infrastructure is, is sort of GPU-ready. And that could be the form of making sure you have sufficiently robust InfiniBand or whatever network uh, connectivity that you're using to, to have your servers talking to each other in the cluster, um, as well as thinking through, um, you know, again, you know, we talked earlier about how many servers one GPU server can replace, and again, just sort of, you know, planning accordingly about do you want to, you know, play that benefit by getting about the same amount of performance in many fewer servers, or do you want to populate those racks and really turn your data center into sort of a super data center? So these are some of the, the decisions that I think I think IT decision makers are looking at when they start looking at how do we how do we begin to deploy GPU? In other words, do we tear out everything and start over, or can we sort of you know crawl, walk, run on this and maybe start to scale out? And then as we want to build up, say, a training cluster, that then maybe we look to build out in a more purpose-built way. So, Dave, is it fair to say, and I'd love to get your insight on on kind of what you're seeing with this, that when we thought about enterprise computing, we're always looking to reduce the number of racks and rack units and servers in the racks and power consumption and air consumption. We basically wanted to continually, uh, uh, you know, get more bang for our buck, as it were. We wanted to get smaller, leaner, keener, meaner, faster, and so forth. But that was all well and good when we think about CRMs and databases and, and traditional business systems. But when we think about artificial intelligence, it's a, it's a much bigger challenge. It's, you know, it's a very big math challenge, and it's got lots of data moving around. And certainly when we think about uh, things like image processing. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of, I guess, what that transition from business adoption of artificial intelligence has meant and and, and certainly the impacts that IBM's uh, new Power9 series has brought about where 
they have deliberately engineered a platform that's designed for, for I guess, workloads like artificial intelligence. What are some of the gains that come out of this by choosing a platform like the IBM Power9 series that has purpose-built for high bandwidth I.O., that's purpose-built to leverage your GPUs to, to focus on the types of workloads that deep learning and artificial intelligence, uh, uh, I guess, solutions are, are going to need? Yeah, that's a great question because, I mean, while we do have a relatively uh, new set of challenges, it turns out that, that to some degree the, you know, the answer to that is not necessarily a new answer, uh, you know, which is, is again, for, for businesses and enterprises and all organizations that matter to really look at what are we going to need to be able to do. And, you know, if we think about the service life of the platform we're deploying and thinking about what it we need to do for us over the next, say, three to five years, and then you have to kind of plan accordingly. So, you know, when you start thinking about bang for the buck, and realize that it, you know that a single server, you know, say with eight GPUs in it, can replace dozens and dozens of CPU server nodes. Some of the economies of scale that you get out of that become pretty obvious in terms of you know reducing your rack count, reducing you know the, the, the population of servers in each rack, um, reducing your HVAC bill over time, your energy footprint over time, uh, and really getting a lot more efficient use out of out of much many fewer square feet of floor space in your actual data center. So, you know, a lot of these economies are, are, are I think, pretty critical for, for IT decision makers to understand that, that this is where the, the GPU acceleration uh, of these workloads really kind of brings it home for them because it's not just about, uh, you know, sort of a neat parlor trick of, hey, look what we can do. This is about delivering real business results and that ability to dramatically accelerate these workloads um, is really going to have just very significant business impact for the customers who are deploying it. Because the data sets, you know, are growing expansively. The, the number of diversity of networks are growing tremendously. The complexity of these networks, the amount of compute that we're doing on each perceptron for training and inference both, are all growing at very dramatic clips. And so if you, you know, if you undershoot, um, now not only do you have a data center that's probably more or less saturated, now you have to start looking at scrambling and saying, okay, well, we, we, we you know, we shot behind the buck, now what do we do? Uh, as opposed to really looking at it and saying, hey, not only do we want to build in for what we think we're going to need, but, you know, we should plan for some headroom. And so if you think about the ways that you can sort of, again, liberate both rack and floor space by going the GPU route, you know, if it turns out later on that, you know, that maybe you undercalled the demand that, you're, that you're, your customers and your business line owners are needing in terms of compute resources, you have that ability to go back and, and with – fairly minimal pain, go back and add additional assets because you've now still got the headroom in the form of rack space and floor space you freed up to put to good use to bring more compute into that data set. I guess with that in mind, um, when, when we think about traditional enterprise, uh, we've sort of thought about people having their own computer rooms and their own data centers and then leveraging third-party data centers. We've now seen this massive transition to adoption of cloud uh, platforms. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, if people are going to invest in the likes of the, the IBM Power9 platforms for their own purposes, both in their labs to start out with and, and, and learn about how to, how to leverage AI through to building their own infrastructure and clusters for development and testing, to then, I guess they're going to be looking to, uh, uh, you know, being able to get access to this in cloud platforms as they have done for many other workloads. Uh, when I was at uh, Las Vegas with a Think um, 2018 event recently, uh, IBM made a series of events, uh, announcements around where the Power Platform and certainly Power 9 is now being uh, adopted by some of the major brands. I don't want to name any, but uh, certainly the, the major brands in cloud space, including IBM's own cloud, uh, you know, this uh, 
I guess, AI-focused uh, hardware platform now is available in the cloud. And I guess that allows people to start out small locally with their own development clusters and then burst into the cloud to scale at large um, to, uh, to, to you know, throw the workloads into someone else's infrastructure at scale and then bring that, those findings back in. Um, are you seeing some of that adoption as well where people are sort of doing small uh, in-house testing to prove models, but then all of a sudden they're throwing it out into uh, larger clouds where they can now get access to the, the likes of the Power9 platform leveraging your NVIDIA hardware? Well, I mean, I think we've seen a whole host of implementations. You know, I think it's not a one-size-fits-all proposition. In other words, some some companies, some organizations are really intent upon keeping the data resident, you know, you know, on-prem um, for business strategy or security reasons. It's data they don't want to let, you know, let loose in the cloud. Um, other customers, yeah, to your point, has respect that we're going to build a certain amount on-prem um, as sort of part of a proof of concept and we'll burst to cloud as necessary. Uh, well, maybe that sensitivity isn't so much of a factor. And then some companies who have said, you know, I think we're going to go, we're going to go all in on cloud. You know, we think cloud is the right answer. Um, it has sort of obvious scalability advantages, and we kind of only pay for what we actually use. So there's no real concern about, you know, having downtime where if we're only really pounding on these servers, you know, say nine or ten hours a day, and the other, you know, 14 or so hours, they're, they're by and large sitting idle. But you know, cloud can be an interesting way to, again, only pay for the compute that you actually have to use. So, you know, again, I think it really depends on the org and, and what some of their constraints are going in as to which one of those is the right answer. Yeah, no, there's some great insights there. And I guess um, just one comment is that I, I remember hearing that uh, a number of cloud providers and certainly um, IBM's offering, uh, we now sort of, when we think about cloud, we think about uh, everything as a service of infrastructure or platform software as a service. There was an interesting announcement recently with regard to uh, various cloud providers such as uh, IBM's uh, uh, cloud offering with uh, deep learning as a service. So I think once we've seen that come out, uh, there's some pretty exciting things that are going to happen because it uh, means that, uh, you know, access to deep learning platforms and technologies are, are now sort of, you know, uh, uh, a utility in many ways and you just pay for what you use, um, which I think is going to give us some exciting uh, ways to uh, dip our toes as well before we start uh, making major investments in, in something that we've yet to prove out. Is it fair to say that, that there's, you know, when we think about... Um, the history of computing from sort of mainframe to, you know, what were basically desktop PCs being turned into servers in many ways. We we often, um, I guess, just followed Moore's law in many ways that things got smaller and faster. But when we when we think about the complexity of the likes of artificial intelligence and deep learning, we do need to rethink things in many ways, I think. Um, and and that sort of gets to the point where I, I did like your point there, and, and I think you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about the Power9 platform from IBM with the high-band I.O. and so forth, that putting one or two uh, cards with GPUs and then putting a couple of NVIDIA V100s or whomever into an existing machine, uh, it, it may give you the access to the GPUs, but it doesn't really give you the, the benefit that you're going to look at if you're moving lots of data and different types of data and different types of workloads you mentioned. Um, if people are setting out on this whole journey uh, from here to AI as this podcast series is around, um, is it fair to say that they should really be sitting back with a clean sheet of paper and say, what's the best platform? What's the best server we can put into our infrastructure? Because um, I remember reading uh, a paper recently where uh, someone had built a test lab and they put a couple of GPUs in an, in an existing cluster and, and had not really been happy with the gains. And yet um, uh, recently I saw uh, an announcement come out with what IBM's doing with the Power9, the number of GPUs they could put into these things in high density uh, and it, you know, it, it made cooling easier in the data center. They had uh, a little less infrastructure in the network space because the data was moving in and out of the servers locally as opposed to across the network and storage. 
Um, is it fair to say that it's probably a time now for people, whether they're thinking about going from a lab environment or a minimum viable product or a proof of concept or a trial, to, to actually sit back and give themselves a chance to start from scratch and say, you know what, we probably need to think about what is the latest and greatest here and, and what are people like IBM doing with their Power9 series and the NV links that are going to give us uh, orders of magnitude of gain in performance, but also, I guess, a, 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 a way to get a better ROI on just a basic hardware investment. Um, and I guess, you know, reduce time to value in many ways because things are going to go leaner and keener and faster. Is that a fair thing to sort of approach this whole challenge with if you're looking to adopt AI from an enterprise point of view? You know, I, th- I think it is in the sense that, you know, starting with a clean sheet obviously gives you many more degrees of freedom. In other words, you can literally design the entire system at the network architecture level, at a, at a, at a macro system architecture level, to really be GPU-ready and GPU-optimized, to really allow those GPUs to really uh, really kind of uh, stretch their wings and fly, right? And so, so that certainly offers up a lot of advantages. And I think what's interesting about it to me is that is that, that conversation and that planning process sort of sits in the context of really broader business strategy about, okay, how are we going to harness AI and deep learning to make our, to accelerate our business? And, and then, you know, where do we want to be in three to five years with this? If we're trying to be a first mover with this, what are the couple of business problems we think this can solve for us that really help, you know, catapult us forward in terms of, say, our market position or the state of our business? So it really is this broader business context as well that has to be factored in. Um, so, you know, the, the design of the data center, while it has many of its own complexities, it does still sit sort of in this bigger house of what's the business strategy it's being built to support. And I, and I think it really is useful to, you know, to, to think in those broader terms as you think about making some of the big capex spends to really go and, and replow an entire data center or build a whole new data center up from the ground. And so that when you get to, you know, flipping the switch on the data center and, and bringing it up and, and having it start doing real work for you, that the ROI and your point, the time to value you're going to get out of it, is really um, aligned to expectations or hopefully exceeds expectations. Yeah, I guess if I'm uh, if I'm on a hospital bed and uh, somebody went cheap on not uh, choosing the right hardware platform to get their AI to find cancer in my brain, or if I'm sitting in the in the seat as a a, a non-driving passenger in an autonomous vehicle, I, I certainly want to hope they've gone back to grassroots and made some good decisions. Before we wrap up, I'd love to get you to gaze into a virtual crystal ball for me and give me some insights on, you, know, you gave us some really good background on kind of how we got to where we are now with the history of, I guess, where GPUs went from sort of, you know, 2D and 3D gaming technology and then high performance compute and scientific, and then it's moved now into more of a business and enterprise space. And I guess in many ways, we assume that artificial intelligence has been built in. Uh, and we've seen a number of big shifts like this where, um, you know, smartphones, we just assume things are available on phone as an app now. And, you know, I, I, I can't remember the last time I went to my banking website or I went to a branch itself. And when we think about the transition to cloud, we assume that cloud's sort of just there natively and we can store files in the cloud and apps are out there. Uh, I think uh, it's fair to say that the transition to the assumption that AI is being leveraged in some way is sort of just a given these days. Um, keeping in mind what you shared with us with regard to how we got to where we are now, um, and the transition to adopting GPUs and what companies like IBM with their Power9 series are doing to leverage that and provide a platform for it. Uh, what are the big things you think are coming down uh, as far as, you know, the next big trends and I guess what's, you know, sort of over the horizon in the future? Um, three to five years down the road, I mean, what are some of the big trends that you think uh, uh, we're going to see, uh, you know, other some eureka moments we might be able to uh, look forward to or is it really just more the same? Um, what's your general sense of kind of, you know, where we're going to from here? 
Well, you know, much has been said in, uh, about about the impact of AI and, and how it's going to change how, how we do, almost, you know, so many things in our lives, right? I mean, Andrew Eng, who's a, a very well-known uh, AI researcher, has been quoted saying that AI is the new electricity. You know, if you think about, you know, when we actually got electricity into homes and electrified, uh, you know, broad swaths of our country or countries around the world, uh, you know, that was that was an absolute game changer in terms of how we lived our daily lives. I mean, it brought, it brought you know, light that didn't fall fire risk into our homes. It basically changed really almost everything. And, you know, today AI is still, we're still kind of in, it's still early days in AI, despite uh, you know, the fact that we're a few years into this journey. Uh, you know, big picture, it, we're still very much in early days here. And so while for some it might still be considered a little bit exotic or bleeding edge, you know, I think in three to five years, for a lot of enterprises, it just becomes table stakes. It becomes a way to help drive your business, get the insights faster, and compete in the marketplace and win in the marketplace. So I think that's certainly one trend I see moving forward. I touched earlier on, you know, the impact of speech and NLP and natural language processing. And, you know, that may take the form of things like, you know, chatbots that you're talking to where, um, you know, you honestly you, you aren't quite sure if you're talking to a human being or not. In other words, you know, what used to be called the Turing test. Uh, that you know, they really have natural language and the ability to understand what you're saying and help you with your problems instead of leaving you know stuck on hold in a in a phone queue for you know for an hour you know you get you get help in a matter of minutes or even seconds. So I mean the number of touch points that AI can have across businesses are, are there's almost too many to count really. But I think one of the other interesting places where you're going to see very interesting insights is for and this is a little bit more in the academic realm, but it's still as it relates to AI affecting how we live our daily lives, is around high-performance computing and AI sort of coming together, right? You know, traditionally they sort of have been being fairly discrete domains where, where the high-performance computing world was really attached to a lot of the material and health sciences, and they do these big giant simulations uh, that involve huge amounts of computation at very high precision. And it allows them to do things like drug discovery and better understanding disease mechanism and a whole host of things. But getting to those answers takes a really long time. And we've already seen uh, customers and, and even grad students who are doing work around this, where they're using AI to accelerate HPC. And in doing that, it allows those researchers to get to those insights faster, to get those drugs to market faster, to help, you know, probably save more lives faster, you know, kind of jumping back to the earlier example you cited of the, the woman with cancer. Uh, and so there's just so many places where AI is going to be having an impact. Um, and that, you know, so for businesses who are kind of thinking about this now and really putting in place good plans, you know, that it is going to position them much better as opposed to not having it in that three to five year time frame um, to be able to, again, glean those insights because, you know, the data sets are only going to grow, right? And so, you know, if you think about big data becoming huge data, you know, that's another reason that AI simply starts to become just table stakes in a, you know, in a couple of years. So, I mean, at the high level, I think those are some of the, a few of the interesting touch points that I think we can look forward to. I liked your comment there with regard to uh, when electricity came along, it uh, lit up the world. Uh, I was having a conversation recently where when I described uh, the, the, I guess, the adoption of AI for, for what were now just everyday business purpose challenges that were impacting people's lives in a positive way. I kind of said, well, if electricity lit up the world, I think AI is going to light up our future. And I think you've just given us a perfect wrap up on the very, very same key point. Uh, Dave Zaldator, uh, Senior Product Marketing Manager at NVIDIA, thank you so much for uh, giving some insights into yourself personally and your background, your career path and how you've come to uh, this exciting role of, of uh, 
of uh, heading up the uh, marketing face of NVIDIA for this space and particularly around AI. Uh, loved your uh, anecdotal history on how we've kind of gotten here from the 2D and 3D uh, gaming space and, and scientific computing challenges and leveraging graphics processes uh, for various purposes. So now I guess what is really very much off the shelf uh, commoditization of the, the whole journey of uh, from here to AI, as we say, uh, adoption of artificial intelligence, particularly leveraging deep learning uh, now that it is uh, very much uh, quote unquote off the shelf as well with your NVIDIA products. And certainly now with what IBM is doing with the Power9 series with uh, NVLink, making it uh, possible to just move so much more data faster in and out of your uh, your hardware and, and uh, leverage the likes of Cooter. Um, really, really appreciate you making time for us. It's been great to get to know you and uh, look forward to seeing what's coming up in the next three to five years, uh, as you've outlined, and uh, where I guess artificial intelligence is going to transition from saving lives uh, in a one-off case with uh, a woman with cancer to, let's hope, uh, an everyday occurrence. Thanks, I enjoyed it. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dave. We'll wrap up with that. Uh, folks, you've uh, heard some great insights from uh, Dave Salvatore, uh, Senior Product Marketing uh, Manager at NVIDIA and the journey from here to AI. I'm Des Blanchard, your host, and we will wrap up with that. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you in the next podcast. Again, thank you for joining us for the IBM Power Systems from Here to AI podcast. If you are interested in learning more information about navigating the journey of implementing AI into your business, please visit ibm.com slash enterprise AI. That's ibm.com slash enterprise AI. I'm Des Blanchfield, and we'll see you next time from here to AI.